The American College of Real Estate Lawyers was founded in 1978. During its 45-year history, it has grown into a national organization of more than 1,000 distinguished real estate practitioners, fostering the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment in real estate projects. During the past year, we've enjoyed listening to the reflections and observations of many of the founders and longtime members of the college. Now we pivot to a series of interviews with iconic real estate investors who have led the companies that have shaped the industry to share insights on their careers and predictions for the future. I am excited by the group of women and men that will be coming your way in the next few months. Today, we open AgroFiles 2.0 with Michael Fasatelli. Mike has had an amazing career and is well known to many fellows in the college. Welcome, Mike, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jay. Great seeing you. Well, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, and we're going to chat, as I said, about lots of interesting things. But let's, we should sort of roll the tape back to the beginning. And I know that you have said many times, I'd love to hear love you when you said you, you grew up on the wrong side of town, Providence. So why don't you just talk a little bit about your where you grew up and, and you know how you got started and in, in, in doing things and you know going 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 to URI and you know before we start talking about all the great real estate things. I grew up in Providence, North Providence, Rhode Island, uh, the son of immigrant Italian parents who were uh, lower middle class might be an upgrade. Um, certainly uneducated. Uh, I was the first to go to college. Um, my mom and uh, dad, uh, Simon Clay, went to high school, um, and I yeah, was lucky enough to get uh, some some uh, scholarship. I was a good basketball player, played at URI for a couple of years, and was cut. I got through University of Rhode Island as a engineer. I was uh, always kind of 800 math, zero English. They gave me 200 points on the SATs, so I made up for that, and um, I then... Uh, Got a little lucky in that when I graduated from URI, I was really interested in business, not as much engineering. Um, I started applying to business schools. I was accepted at Harvard Business School as a kind of experiment from a public school and from a background like that. And I uh, graduated Harvard Business School, uh, uh, went to Harvard Business School in 1980, graduated in 82. I was 78 uh, class at URI. So that propelled me into a different kind of career than I was, you know, my first job was in a factory after college and uh, as an engineer, process engineer, plant manager. And you know, it's a lot different being on at McKinsey and Wall Street in real estate. So yeah, I mean, I share that background. I went to engineering school also and decided to pivot as I was getting out um, and went to law school, not to business school. But you, when you got accepted to Harvard, right, it's very unusual, right, for the business school to take people straight from college. It was. It wasn't. I wasn't. I got in right from college, but I was something called a deferred admit, which was even more unusual. I think there was five percent of the class. They were told that you could come in two years. You had to get work experience, and that, that they would approve that. And that basically meant you had to do something intelligent for two years. You know, in a company I worked for, Crystal Myers, and then you had a spot. You'd have to reapply. So I was accepted out of high out of college. And I went two years then. So I was four years from graduating college to graduating business school. Two years work experience, two years of business school. And that model went away over time. They basically got rid of most of the deferred admit. 
and they extended the two years to three or four, a lot of cases. So classes get older. But it was very unusual to either get in directly to college or be the third in bed. And then, so you're at the B school and you went to McKinsey afterwards, right? When, yes. when did you when did you figure out that sort of real estate was going to become was going to become your passion? Well, you know, my, my interesting my brother was a construction guy. He was a builder and he went boom and bust in a couple of cycles when I was a kid. My brother, my mother and father were older. My brother was almost 18 years older than me, and I was the only sibling. So that's either called a change of life baby or an accident. So basically, I was, um, I, I grew up kind of almost like a single, my father was like my grandfather, my brother was like my father in a lot of ways. So I had this background, which, you know, was really based, you know, very, I mean, kind of middle class, like really lower middle class. But my brother was like a real estate guy in some ways. I liked I worked on houses, I worked on construction. That was my summer jobs. So I was around real estate. We started buying houses and renovating them. When we were in college, when I was in college, my brother had gone through a bankruptcy. So it kind of like I started in a really basic real estate stuff. So I was interested in it, but I never really studied it in school. And when I graduated business school, I went to McKinsey, you know, and then three years later, I went to Goldman and I went into real estate as a kind of was growing on, you know, kind of on untamed, unproven area at Goldman. And it was kind of an area for me to go in and make a bigger impact quicker. And I had no experience, but except basic general training. Was Whitehall formed when you were there or was it already yes. there? No, I, Whitehall, I, I went in, there was no Whitehall when I started. I started in 1985, I spent three years in McKinsey then went to Goldman in 85. I was basically a real estate investment banker doing, you know, doing, you know, financing sales, you know, taking companies public a little bit, um, evaluating corporate real estate, a lot of corporate clients, you know, that, that was kind of the, and then in the nineties, when the real estate market went into tumbles and you remember, uh, the proverbial thing, you know, kind of the first, first opportunity to go through what was a giant rework recession and restructuring real estate in the early nineties. We formed Whitehall, and Whitehall was a byproduct of that era. And Dan Neidick and I, who was a co-running real estate, kind of figured out Whitehall and eventually started uh, that business in the early 90s. Right, and that, yeah, that's when interest rates, people were not old enough to remember, that's when interest rates for the prime was, what, 19% at one point, I think. Well, that was the early 80s. Like, real estate, when I came out of business school in 19, 20%, they went down, the first loan I did at Goldman, at 1985, it was 12.5% on the building in Boston. And then they, but the in 90s, they were down quite a bit, like the 7 8% range. But the problem was the oversupply from the tax act and overbuilding. You remember in RTC and all those wonderful days, you know. Right, right. Yeah. I remember actually you talking at, at Wharton once at a Zell Learning meeting when you were cleaning up your office, which we'll get to later after Vernado, and you had all these closing books. Um, yeah. with high interest rate deals and you know right. were, they, were we ever going to you didn't need those anymore was your right. Right. So, so okay so you stayed at Goldman and then um, Steve Roth you know came up with this idea I guess to try and entice you away to go to Vernado how did that happen well I, I had represented um, Alexander's uh, against Steve when a city bank was trying to sell their position that they had 
actually foreclosed on the government Donald Trump. That's an interesting fact. Trump was a major shareholder in Alexander's. Citibank was a lender. They took Trump uh, shares in, and they hired us. And actually, Citibank was Wendy Silverstein, I later worked at Benito with. And I was working for Goldman. And we were, again, Steve, who owns, you know, kind of 25, 27% of Alexander's, and we represented 30%. And we had, that's how I got to know Steve. And um, when he first said to me, how would you like to come leave uh, Goldman Sachs and kind of be president of Veneto and be my partner? I said, why the hell would I do that? And I, and I said, I, you know, being on the other side of the table for you, you could use my help, but I'm not that crazy. So I, I basically uh, joined Veneto after Steve and I kind of got to know each other and he courted me a little bit. It was very unusual to leave Goldman as a partner and made front page news everywhere. But I went at the Venado, which was a relatively small company in 19, at the very end of 96, very beginning of 97. I kind of accepted on December and kind of transitioned in by, by, by the first of the year of 97. So it's a long time ago, but I had a stint, a great stint at Goldman. And I just thought Venado was a great company, uh, very good, um, very good assets, you know, kind of very small, with a good balance sheet that we could grow because we were still coming into, even then, we were still just getting going from restructuring REITs and real estate. And, you know, we had a lot more uh, tools in our uh, toolbox, but it, the real estate market hadn't exploded. It still was kind of on its very early stages of the, uh, in recovery, but really stage recovery. So your strategy there was what? How to take advantage of a, you know, mature, you know changing real estate market from the, previous cycles with, uh, as you say, an asset class that was surely far, far less than it grew into under your and Steve's leadership. Right. But what happened was interesting. My Goldman years were really instructive for me because during that transition we talked about in the 90s, I was able to get quite a bit of principal and experience because of Whitehall and taking companies that were going through near life experiences in the 90s. Remember, a lot of conversion to REITs. A lot of reworking of debt and equity. You know, that was 93, 94, a lot of rock center got restructured. And, you know, I became, uh, Whitehall got created. So I became active in the principal business and wanted to do more than the agency representing businesses. You know, you represent clients for years. Some people like that. Some people want to be on the client side. Some people want to be on the advisory side. I wanted to be on the principal side more, more more solidly as a job. Venado is a owner and a principal. So I was able to take that experience from Goldman and really transfer it to Venado. And immediately once I did that, we ended up buying the Mendic company, which is in registration of public. And that launched Venado from a pretty small grocery anchored community shopping center company, basically it was into the office business in New York. And we built a huge uh, company on the basis of that first acquisition, which was in April of uh, 1997. So the Mendic acquisition was the first real foray into big New York real yes, estate. Yes, it was. And then quickly after that, we bought some loans that we could rent equity, just like other people doing at 90 Park, and we bought the Helmsley building to Penn Station. So we, we, we really added, we used that as a platform. That deal will go down, I think, as a great real estate deal. You know, Mendix, multiples, multiples of the original purchase price. But more importantly, as importantly as that, we're able to use that as a platform to buy many other buildings in New York. And we really went into New York City in a big way 
buying office and retail. You know, retail. So we, we took the Benedo company, basic shopping center, they don't even have that now, and we moved it into a much more New York-centric office and retail company. So how did you evaluate, just for example, right, investment opportunities, you know, existing assets versus development opportunities? Well, you could buy, it really was really about price per pound. But we could buy buildings that we thought were, you know, we were buying a lot of buildings for a couple hundred dollars a foot at that point. And the replacement cost was four or $500 a foot. And land cost might've been a hundred dollars a foot. So, you know, before you built the building, you had to you know, get through a lot of overhang and supply and vacancy had to get really used up to really justify development. There was really no development going on in the nineties. I remember uh, Al Ratner, my friend said, if you have the urge to develop, call 1-800-DEVELOPERS-ANONYMOUS. Um, <laughs> because, you know, it basically, was just no mathematics to support that. And you started to see that later in the 80s, later in the 90s, late 90s, when rents had kind of come up a lot. Construction costs had not gone up as much. Land prices had kind of got hurt. Now it kind of got back to some semblance where you can make the numbers work. So then we moved from some buying acquisitions, really cheap at, at, at fraction of the replacement cost. You always made a premium for new buildings that the replacement cost. And we started moving into more development. But we did a lot of redevelopment, buying existing buildings that were, you put new lobbies and new skins on. We did a lot of what I call high touch development, which took the rents up. So we were more, our business strategy was more redevelopment than pure development and buying cheap per pound. And then it evolved into development when the markets got too expensive to buy existing assets and we went more to development. And how, you know, when you're doing the, I mean, you've obviously done lots of development deals and we can talk what you accomplished in Milwaukee and everything. How, how do you um, evaluate the risk reward in those development you know, situations? You look at, you know, I think development's a risky business, you know, it's riskier than you think because it usually takes many years between when you actually, you know, conceive this idea, you buy the land, design the building, you build the building, you rent the building. And then you maybe refinance or sell the building, right? That's it. That's not a one or two year cycle. That's a three, four, five year cycle in most cases, at least that long. And markets change very dramatically during that period. We've seen that in our whole career, Shay, where, you know, rates go up, go down, you know, vacancies. So it's a very risky business. And you're performing, which means you're projecting the future. And they're never right. They're never right. By definition, they're always wrong. Question how far off you are. So you're trying to get paid a premium. So if you could buy existing builders at a five and a half, six cap, you're trying to get a seven, seven and a half cap for that development deal because it was further out, futuristic projections, renting up different risks, construction risk, lease up risk, financing, refinancing risk. So you had to get a premium for that. And then markets sometimes didn't allow that premium to be gotten. So you know, like we see it even in New York now with Hudson Yards getting a premium rent one year to build today. So I, you know, you can't do massive redevelopment or development because it has to work in that with those numbers. It has to be a premium of what the numbers look like when you buy existing stuff. So let's talk about the capital markets. And you know, I mean, you've as we said before, you've seen it over a long period of time. And you know, you're you're one of the most savvy investors out there. And we're, we're all reading these reports about 
the massive amounts of debt that's out there that needs to be refinanced on existing product and the challenges it's going to face. Where, where do you think we are today um, in, in the capital markets stat situation? And what, what do you think is going to happen with all these buildings that are coming up for refinancing? You have you have a little bit of this high, uh, as previous what happened at the retail market. As you know, retail went through this when you know, a lot of things were redlined, a lot of values were decreasing because of vacancies and departments of vacancies or malls or other vacancies in communities, strip shopping centers. And what happened was it almost got redlined and the cost of borrowing went way up, you know. And then what happened was incomes were under pressure. So, and, and TIs were going up. So, you had a restructuring of retail where the better ones did well and the other ones kind of got re retrofitted. And that's happening now in office, I see. You know, with the added added thing, you know, the internet and Amazon, all that with existential factors in retail, now you have this COVID work from home factor in office, which has put a question mark in Tampa. I believe people will go back to work in offices. Uh, I'm not in the office now, but. I'm more productive when I go into the office. And I think people's culture, people's companies to build that culture, the management, supervision, the productivity, all are begging to be back in the office. Maybe it won't be the same as it was pre-COVID and pre that. Maybe it'll be hybrid models or some, but that's caused the office market to be even questioned further beside what I think was kind of oversupply, too much space. People were shrinking, and, and then they have a recession. What does that mean? And so then you had, so we just became very tough to predict office right now. And the shares of office numbers like Austin Property, Fran Owen, Benedo, have gotten really hurt quickly because people, I think, have added, uh, added an unknown of the future of the office building. But because the other thing that people underestimate was it just, the financing costs doubled or even got more than doubled in less than a year. That shocked to the system. Nobody underwrote that. So rates went from three to six and spreads widened. So you had, you had two, you know, and it's still quite wide. So now you see office pricing. When we, when we bought Medic and other companies, we were taking seven, eight percent mortgages, nine percent mortgages that were already in place, refinancing them at four or five percent. Then it went down to the threes. Now we're going refinancing mortgages that are in the three, fours, maybe fives. In the five, six, and sevens, and that's caused a huge value decrease. So we got a lot of banks with loans that are now used to be 60, 70 percent loan to value, which are now 100 percent loan to value. A lot of money that's going to go into it because of TIs and tenant course. So there's going to be a massive restructuring of the of that loan, a little bit like what we did when we went through these other things in the 90s and way nine. There'll be AB notes created. There'll be money put in after the day note. There'll be hope certificates created for the beef, you know. All the same technology, I think, will be redeployed and dusted off. There'll be new things that come that we haven't thought of. But I think it'll be a restructuring of the office business, I think, for values, and just like happened with retail. And I think it'll be tougher and more expensive to borrow money for a while until rates come back down and spreads narrow. And do you think that the office restructuring that you're mentioning and that our seniors out there, right? Can that happen? Does it happen without an RTC, TARP program? It's gonna, it would accelerate. I think it can happen on RTC, but it'll go faster and accelerate when there's a banking, uh, when there's like the FDIC is involved in signature bank or there's a 
there's a there's an event like that because then you get into discovery your pricing gets collapsed quicker, right? And there's an auction of the loans, auction of some REO. When there's when there's a kind of currently it's like a stalemate, it's like a pretend and extend, it's like a rework, it's like a baton. The no that banks don't want them, the other guys don't want to put new money in. So you find out you limp along slowly until you hit an inflection point. And that inflection point is usually speeded up by bank failures or, or lenders that need to liquefy or just meet the market. And I think we're going to get to that, but it'll be slow as you move into 24. And what's your outlook for, you know, when you think the markets turn, you know, obviously interest rates, as you mentioned, is a huge piece of that puzzle, getting people to come back to the office, you know, at least three days a week. I mean, you, you may not may remember this early in the pandemic, I want to say, I think in June of 2020 at a, at a Wharton meeting, somebody asked Joe Jerko um, what his prediction was for New York City to be back where it was pre-pandemic. And his answer was 10 years. And I, I remember it was a virtual thing. The audience went, oh my God, are you kidding? Right? Um, and here we are five years, four years you know, from that point, And obviously three and a half years. We're a long way from New York City being back to where it was in other major cities. Yeah, you look at you look at that that trend is equally bad or even worse than San Francisco, right? It's even a tougher market. You're gonna have Owen on the thing. It, it, you have even like Washington DC, which you're in today. The government hasn't asked people and forced people back to work. So the government's the, one of the largest landlords, if not the largest in DC, it used to be. I still think it is. So if, if the big landlords, if the big employers, right, and, and the government's the biggest employer, don't require the people to be in the office three, four, five days a week, then it's, there's no, it's less incentive. And I think we're working that through. It does, everything takes longer than you think. So I don't think Joe's 10 years is right. I think it wasn't going to come back as soon as COVID was, quote, safe and done. So, because there, and there'll be some areas that say, ah, I can do four days a week and I can always take, but the problem is people are self-selecting. I want Fridays off and maybe Mondays off. It's not, they're taking Wednesdays off, right? So I, I think there is a little bit of, I think, rebalancing lifestyles. And, and you know, I, I think in a recession, employees will have more leverage. I think that'll speed up the kind of return to work. I think they're seeing the impact. It's not free. It's not free. This office that was created to create cultures and, and productivity and, 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 and efficiencies and links and relationships. How would you think your career would have gone if you were never in an office or your clients' offices? Totally different. Totally different. Well, I, I think it's a major concern for all the professional services businesses, not being mentored, you know, trained, having the opportunity to see people, and you know you got to get people to come back. I mean, look, John Gray ordered everybody back right. in June, I think, of 2020, because he knew that that's going to be the key to being more creative, more innovative, and better training of the future. I, I think the law firms, in particular, have a real challenge in front of them. Hopefully, we'll they'll, they'll figure it out. But yeah, I think our careers would have been much much different. And I think unless we get the younger people back, they're just not going to be as as skilled and as versatile as the people from the prior generations. There's a lot of apprenticeship that goes on in those businesses, including the investment business, the real estate business. And if you're in an apprenticeship type business role, 
you need to be there to learn and you need to interact and see calls and be in the office and see people, you know, negotiate and be huddled around meetings and talk about the investment thesis and investment memos. And I think that apprenticeship beyond also the culture and the kind of training you get is really critical. So those businesses are hard to displace, you know, yeah. over time. But I think there'll be a hybrid. There'll be some jobs that don't need to be going in every day of the week, right? So we'll, we'll get there. But I think I think the, the market got more shocked quickly because of COVID and quickly because of the combination of rates, inflation, COVID, and rates rising, rate spreads rising, put a shock into the system at a time when it really couldn't afford that shock. So, you know, like with every one of these cycles that we've seen, and you, you've seen, you know, five, six, seven of them over the last 30, 40 years, right? There's always people that find the opportunities, right? The right. most people get hurt, but the most creative, innovative investors like you and others always find opportunities. So, so where are the opportunities um, in this cycle in the real estate community? Well, I think they're all over what we were talking about before. Um, you know, it, it will be in major cities, a lot of the major cities, in office, in restructuring, even multifamily, which has changed, you know, got, got overheated, but not necessarily on the demand side, but more on the cap rate and, and, and people building, developing, they're buying at three and a half, trying to build at four and a half, five, now they're on the water, right? So there's to be a huge equity injection. So what I, I think the op is to re-equitize the, these, these buildings, re-equitize Debt for equity, you know, uh, I think that's going to be one of the big opportunities which we went through in the 90s. We went through the debt crisis in the late 90s. We went through in the 08, the dot-com bubble in the 2000s, and we went through. And so we've done it four or five times. And real estate is a very capital-intensive industry, and the capital recycling and re-equitization is going to be a huge opportunity. And what happens is, People who have, when one of the advantages of Whitehall had, when you looked at that, that time thing, people who had real estate didn't want to have another, it was like being full. People saying, I got a really juicy hamburger for you. You said, I'm stuffed, right? I don't want to eat that. But the guy who didn't, who was hungry, who didn't have a hamburger, he went in and said, that looks really good. I'll have one of those, right? So that what happens is the less you're in the business, sometimes the easiest for you to go in and rationalize that and see the light at the end of the tunnel because you're inundated with leasing problems or restructuring problems or you're a lawyer working on you know loan restructurings or N NPLs or you know and so you suddenly say every day you know I hope there's a pony in here somewhere because there's certainly a lot of crap in here and you, you know when you're new and you're looking from outside so I think there'll be huge opportunities for people aren't as in the trenches but see the opportunity that would be a pricing and rebalancing of real estate. And some of those players will be in the business, some will be out of the business, some will be operating uh, people using their operating leverage and skills, teaming with capital, doesn't have it. Some will be new on entrance and it'll get done. It'll, it happens every time. It might take a little longer, a year or two longer, depends on economy, you know, all kinds of other exogenous factors, but it will happen again. And do you think that the capital will come more from you know tr some traditional real estate companies that have obviously done that over time prep back and other stuff and, and the non-bank banks than the regulated bankers yes i think it'll be a combination it'll be 
in the in the market players and out of the market players, there'll be capital that links with skills and operating platforms. It'll be all of the above. I think it'll be, you know, it'll be. But sometimes it takes the catalyst of new money or not as committed, not as in the trenches money that really gets it rolling because they say, hey, it's just like somebody buying a bank, but all the problems are putting their portfolio in market. They suddenly are freed up by the fact that they bought at, at ten. They're not trying to figure it out at 20. So, you know, they, I think that that cleansing, that big price, that bid-ass discovery, the price discovery really makes things more liquid and it makes it the market return to normal. Right now, there's volumes are way down. People are looking at each other. There's big gaps in pricing. There's like hoping, hoping that rates come down faster, it, it, hoping that the people go back to work. And it'll, it'll get the reality and then the reality will get solved. So if you had a hundred million dollars now, that if some you know somebody hired you to invest a hundred million for a family office or something, right, and they wanted to put it in real estate, what what would your advice be? I would I would be go slow, be patient because I think it's still just starting, and as you said, these even with the these things take longer, even the recovery it lags. You know, uh, public markets react much quicker. They they can price potato today, they can price Boston properties like. And so green, they can sell those shares. And so they've gone down much quicker than the private market. There's a big, uh, big spread between those two. So you might find public securities to be a really good place to put that money now because it doesn't offer you the control that the private does, but because there's a gap, I think the values are pretty significant between the private and public. Then I say, I want to be more defensive, like maybe multifamily or cash flowing assets, uh, self storage, multifamily niche. Medical office that you think, you know, you you could you could bridge a year or two if, if or longer if it got delayed, and then there's the stress in buying, which comes from buying a loan that was 100, you know, buy for 40, and you have a new basis. So I would be a combination of those I look for, but initially I looked at the public opportunities because they're readily doable for that 100 million you said. Then I would look at what I would think of would be kind of. Um, you know, defensive sectors where I could buy cheaper than I could before. I could finance it longer. I could get through the cycle and I would look for distress opportunities. Okay, fair enough. So let, let's talk about, I know one of your great passions the last five years is in Milwaukee. Um, right. Everything you did um, with your involvement, part of the Bucks ownership and the old development around the arena and the project. I, you told me that one of the highlights of your career was when Adam Silver gave you a shout out um, when you guys right. won the championship, but right. what what were the challenges like there? You know, building a new arena and trying to create a real you know place making opportunity in the, in the Milwaukee. Oh, you know, look, it, it has been a lot of fun. The NBA is an incredible franchise, incredible league, and Milwaukee is one of the thirty teams in that league. But it's Milwaukee, and it has been left behind, like so many Midwest and some some cities. In terms of its population, exodus from the downtown, you know, atrophy, crime, sign up, people feeling the safe as they should, not new development coming through, businesses leaving, you know, a, a place, a, a set of facts that a lot of cities went through, you know, in, in that period of time. It wasn't the Austin of the world, the Nashville of the world, right? It was, it was the Indianapolis, it was the Milwaukee's, it's Chicago's, it's, 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 it's smaller markets that. New Orleans that got that they hit. So what we thought when we bought the Bucks was 
that one it was a great franchise, had a good history of franchise in the NBA, but it was small market. We had to really make it expand that market. And one of the ways we do is making it more entertaining. We had a, we had one of the worst, if not the worst, arena, the National Basketball Association. It had been built in the mid '80s by to really be a hockey arena by uh, uh, the widow of the Bradley Fran family, who really loved hockey, and they never got a hockey franchise, so it was never really a good basketball. And it was you know really old, you know almost almost forty years old. So we saw an opportunity. We bought the box to. to really redo the arena and with that you have a brand in the box you have the arena and the, the flow for not only games but concerts and other events and the event-based business we thought if we could do that we could do entertainment retail restaurants apartments we could bring people back to the city and we're we're on that track we built we did build the new arena it came up fantastic a lot of bang for our buck we got in a good timing when we could build it a little cheaper before inflation really took off. So that was a benefit. We, we were able to build apartments around it. We just opened a new hotel recently, right right next to it. We opened some uh, entertainment like Punchbowl Social Brewing Company, things like that around the arena. And we was doing great. I mean, COVID hit. And COVID really whacked that because there's no events. We never, I, you know, I went to school a lot. I'm pretty good with math, but I never went through a zero revenue business adjustment. And, you know, the TV contract kept the NBA flush and alive because they, we were able to go to the bubble and with no arenas, no fans, keep going. But it was not, it was very painful. No income from the gate, no events for the people around it that we built. So it took, it probably took two or three years off the timetable. So now we're back in the market. The hotel opened just, just recently. We're now going to follow that with another residential building. We'll follow that with some more entertainment retail. So we've revitalized the city. It was great to win the championship highlight. You know, winning a championship in the NBA is really hard. I think only seven teams owners have won, had the luxury of winning a championship. It's really hard. You know, a lot of good luck. You're going to be not injured. You're going to have health. You're going to get the ball to fall at the right time with a critical shot. Even it did a lot of people are really good. So, you know, we, we think we did that, but we think have a lot more to go, I think, in terms of what we can do and we'll walk you over time. Eventually, 10, 20 years, we'll have created a city within a city. And then we call it the Deer District and really feel good about what we've done for the city, state, community. And they really appreciate it. And, you know, it's Milwaukee. It's going to be localized, too. That It's not what we work in New York necessarily or other places like Golden State, but it works for Milwaukee. Right. So, I mean, it's interesting. It's a, as you say, right, there's a real lesson there when you hear all the criticisms about, you know, wasting public money on some of these arenas. I mean, I'm two blocks away from, uh, you know, Capital One Arena, the old Verizon. Right. You know, when, when Abe Poland did that with his own money, right, it completely revitalized East End, not revitalized, right? It, 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 it vitalized the East End of D.C. and created this whole situation around, around this market and, and spawned all this development. And it was a great thing for the city. I think there's a lot of evidence, way more evidence suggested public-private partnerships or whatever that structure is, and putting a lot of capital into it where some with a drawer. And in that case, that arena is a drawer, not only for the basketball, for the hockey, for for the events, for the concerts, for the frozen shows, for the and and same if you have that and you take advantage of that brand and that thing, you can really change an area over time, Jay. And I think the examples are far more in our favor. And not in terms of 
the, the bang for your buck you get on that investment, both for the, from if the public's involved, the private ownership, the state, city, counties, they really, it's a bang for everyone gets a, a return on that, I think. And I think that'll be a model for what you see going forward with sports and entertainment. You know, branding is, is tied in with that, to, 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 especially in a world where, you know, viewing patterns are changing people, live content is so important. Right. Okay. So let's talk about one of your other passions, uh, URI. You, you've been an amazing um, um, alumna there and, 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 you know, given these wonderful donations of the center named after your mom and the engineering center. What, what, you know, what's your, what's your strategy there and what do you hope to accomplish? Well, you know, I, I, like I said, going back to the beginning, I was, I was lucky to be, you know, have the shot, shot to get educated where my parents weren't, weren't able to do that. So, you know, coming from that lower middle-class background, you know, URI gave me a chance, it gave me the shot. I, you know, I said I wanted to be a basketball player, found that I wasn't nearly good enough to make that work. Um, but I got a good education in engineering, which was a wonderful, you know, kind of background to have. And that would really, you know, except for the two-year stint between graduate school and undergrad, I never really was an engineer, but the thinking and the training was valuable. I felt like people who had gone through schools and have been fortunate enough, like I was, to have done well in life, be successful, make enough money to give back. And URI needed it. URI is a, doesn't have a big endowment. It's a state school. States decreased the funding. So myself and people like Tom Ryan, who was at a CBS, was a great, you know, great contributor to URI, great leader in the Rhode Island community. He was running that company. Uh, we got involved in URI, both the alumnus that helped form, uh, they take the school, ran a capital campaign, built the endowment. We were part of that. And I, I felt one of my mom, who was like always believed in education, more getting her kids getting in more. She, had, she was the oldest of 10 kids. And she had to provide for them as a seamstress. So she had a skill but you know, not educated, she believed in it. So I honored her with that first little donation and kind of the engineering school, which had such a big impact on my life and trajectory. Because, you know, I think, you know, you gotta remember where you came from because, you know, you gotta go, it's just the right thing to do would be humble about how you made it. And so I, I think your eyes turned the corner. I was on the search committee for new president, I'm on the board and still needs to continue to raise money and get better in areas, but, is I think it's really vital for the state of Rhode Island's growth. So I've, I've enjoyed helping. You know, I, I'm in fact involved at Harvard Business School. They're great in their own right, but Harvard doesn't need me nearly as much as URI needs me. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, I love the fact that you gave a down a scholarship for kids from North Providence in need. Right. Right. right, right. Yeah, because, you know, there are people going to school today. People, we, we lose track that college is expensive, right? URI is a good bargain for great value for in state students. But if you're taking a kid or two kids to college and you're subsidizing it, it's not inexpensive. So we felt like if we can identify people from my high school who are academically sound and good and driven, that we should help them make that take that uh, make that transition and get that bridge to go to school. Okay. So before we finish up, a couple other questions. So given who our audience is here and given all the you know, professional services, lawyers, brokers, and folks you've dealt with over your career. Just, just tell, tell us, you know, what do you think the strengths and the weaknesses are, if you want, of really good advisors? I think they're critical in a deal business like real estate. 
um, you know, you're always you always have teams like you know, part of that culture we talk about going to the office. We were sitting in these conference rooms, eat far too much, right? You know, all these crappy food brought in all hours. And it would be the financial advisors or financial or bankers and the lawyers and the deal people, right? That was not, if you took a picture of the deal, you'd find that ingredient in 90, 95%, right? Lawyers, legal team, finance team, or investment banking team, and principal, you know, underwriting team, or the principal, right? The client in your case. So, um, you know, good, good service is absolutely critical. And you want somebody, uh, all, all the men and women involved in that, you want to be, understand what your objectives are, you want quality of service, you want you want loyalty to try to get, you know, when you need them, because they're being pulled at other, you always want them 100%, even though you can't afford them 100%, but in crunch time, you need them 100%. So it's that, it's that great service provider who can give you that time, attention, thought, knowledge, breakthrough, work and judgment and experience when you need to get through issues that are always got to be negotiated and compromised. You know, um, I, I, it's just, but in our business, it's very, I feel like I'm a minor in law because I've done so much documentation. Real estate's a very document intensive thing. So in my career, I kind of feel like I got a minor in training in law, you know, clauses for indemnities and engagement letters and, and, and indemnities for deals and, Way turnouts work, and like so, I think having great advisors makes that process so much more uh, efficient, and more important, so much more effective. Okay, all right. Two last questions. Um, what's the best investment advice you ever got? You know, one one guy said, you know, to me, I don't think it's one single piece. One guy said, you make you make you make riches in niches. You know, pick a market, pick pick a pick a particular, you know, uh, area you think you can, you can really excel in, you know, not spread yourself all of that. And then another person said, if you believe in conviction, you know, you have to load it in. And you, when we went into the market in New York, it was not turned yet. We bought a lot of stuff with conviction and that turned out that outside return. It's hard to make money when everyone loves it. You know, it's when something looks a little dicey or timing is not perfect. Uh, you take those risks. So, being having conviction and managing risk, not not just taking risk, but managing risk, matching risk up, taking those bets, but making the best sizable enough to make a difference. Good, I like it. So, if if we were going to post a slide at our next American College of Real Estate Lawyers meeting with you know one slide of you know words of wisdom and advice from Michael Facetelli, what would it say? Uh, um. You know, probably be humble, don't get old. <laughs> but it beats the alternative. I think humility is a really important thing. I think understanding what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you've learned, what you're not learned, and then applying it continuously. But being humble, I think, is a really, you're never, never getting to that point you think you know it all, I think would be the best advice I could give. Great. Great advice. Michael, I, I thank you so much for taking the time and doing this. I, I know that everybody will gr benefit greatly by your observations and, and um, projections of, of where we're going in this interesting market. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. I, I'll give you one more little tidbit story, you know, Jay. I forgot this, since it's a lawyer's uh, audience, 
I once had an experience where I will name the person, a lawyer who has done a lot of work for us, took me to lunch. And we had lunch and I got started to pay for it. And um, the, the the guy said, no, I got it. I got to do a lot of work. So he paid. I said, great, picked up the tab. Then we got a bill from the law firm. And now Bill, somebody looked at it and I saw that the lunch was on there that he picked up, you know, two, three months later. I couldn't remember, but that didn't bother me as much as the fact they put a 25%, a 22% administrative surcharge on it for handling it. So I called and said, listen, I don't mind paying for lunch, but I'm not paying the surcharge. So <laughs> if you do that, remember your clients, they don't like those overhead reimbursement things. They don't mind paying for your brain. So anyway, that's, I thought that was a good story. It's just another branch of being humble and knowing sort of where you are and, and how to deal with people. Right, right. Great. All right. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks, Dad. Take care. Be well. Thanks. You too. Bye, Caitlin.